the hands of the goddess. We are held, we are held, we are held. We are loved in the heart of the goddess. We are loved, we are loved, we are loved. What in your life needs to heal? Is it something in your body? Is it in your thoughts or your feelings? Welcome to the Empowered Healer Show with your host, Dr. Susan Allison. Our program will present healing methods and ideas to help you change the challenging parts of your life and support the people who mean the most to you. Now, here is Dr. Susan Allison. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Empowered Healer Show. I'm Dr. Susan Allison, and I'm so glad that you're here today. I hope that you've been having an empowering week and are learning something new about yourself and your life. I know I am. Today's guest is Rick Hansen, author of Buddha's Brain, The Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom. I've been reading this thought-provoking book all week and rereading parts for more clarity and insight and All I have to say is, wow, what a deep book with layer upon layer of of meaning and also what I like are practical ideas to help us be happier. What I've realized from this process is that my tendency to be a bit negative, at times fearful and hypervigilant, is actually rooted in my ancestral past and stored in my brain. On today's show, Rick will help us understand how and why our brains were wired for protection and how we can now rewire them to be less defensive and negative and more trusting and happy. He'll share a few exercises to help us develop more love, compassion, and empathy, become more mindful and aware that we're not alone and insignificant, but part of the whole and the beauty of life. Rick Hansen has a doctoral degree as a neuropsychologist, and he's also a meditation teacher. A graduate of UCLA, he co-founded the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom and edits Wise Brain Bulletin. He's the author of two books, Buddha's Brain, The Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom, and the text, Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. Rick's been invited to speak at Oxford, Stanford, and Harvard, and he leads meditation workshops worldwide. He's previously been a guest on NPR, PBS, and other radio and television networks. So I feel honored to have Rick Hansen here with us today on Voice America. Hi, Rick, and welcome to the show. Hi, Susan. It's a pleasure for me as well to be here, and greetings to everyone who's uh, listening. Thank you. Uh, and as I always do on my show, I'd like to begin with you and your past, because as I've been reading your book, Rick, I've been wondering what came first, your interest in science, psychology, and the brain, or your love of Buddhism and meditation, and how did these interests evolve and co-mingle? Well, that's a, that's a good one. I'll try to be kind of succinct about it. That's the, the honest answer that gets at the heart of the matter is that I think like a lot of people, probably you as included, when I was young, um, I had a sense that I could, hard, could not really put into words, but I just knew somehow that more happiness was available than 
uh, was happening around me in my home, my neighborhood, my school, uh, in the lives of people I saw out there as adults. I just knew somehow that a deeper, truer well-being and peacefulness and lovingness was actually available. And I didn't know how to do it, but I was very interested in the how of happiness, if you will. And when I say happiness, I mean a, a, a deep sense of unconditional contentment uh, that can contain distress and sorrow and loss, but it's a little bit like the ocean is contented and on the surface there are stormy waves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that took me out into college and then the human potential movement, Eastern spirituality, I began meditating in 1974, and I thought that the um, wisdom traditions of the world had so much to offer about the deep answer to the question of how can we be truly happy and how can we truly uh, integrate and combine being strong and effective in the world while also keeping our, our hearts open and our eyes on the horizon. That then took me into Western psychology, and I began to mine it for its own insights, and then that took me further into um, neuroscience because the brain is really the final common pathway of all the various causes and conditions that create our moment-to-moment experiencing. So pulling it together, those three threads, one, the wisdom traditions, contemplative traditions, particularly Buddhism, it's the one I know best, but there are other, of course, great contemplative traditions in the world. One, the wisdom traditions, two, Western psychology, and three, neuroscience. Um, mm-hmm. Pulling those three together is what I tried to do in my, my book, Buddha's Brain. In other words, mm-hmm. to mine the intersection of those three circles where they overlap yep. for insights, but especially for skillful means, for tools regular people can use mm-hmm. in daily life. I've been married over 30 years. We have two young adult kids, two mortgages. Three cars, one cat, you know, real life. And uh, I'm really interested in what's going to be useful to people, real people, dealing in the trenches of everyday life. So that's what kind of is my background. Wonderful. You did that so succinctly but clearly. And I started meditating in 1975. And when I was pregnant uh, with my daughter, who was born in 1976, and so um, we shared that 70s, it was transcendental yeah. meditation for me at the time, and I've mm-hmm. since used some breath techniques. My husband's Buddhist, so used um, some breathing techniques that I also use with clients. So uh, I have that in common with you. Yeah. Yeah. The, I guess the question I have, and also for my non-science uh, science background listeners, is for you to say a little more about neuroscience, what it is, because the rest of it I get, and I think mm-hmm. that they will get. But can you say something in more in layman's terms about neuroscience? Oh, sure. In a nutshell, it's the science of the three pounds of tofu inside the skull. In other words, mm-hmm. that organ there is the brain. Neuroscience more broadly is, of course, dealing with the whole nervous system. But that nervous system is headquartered, of course, in the brain. So the point is that other than a transcendental X factor, God, the spirit, the ground, the nameless, what have you, other than that, bottom line, moment to moment, the mind, including conscious experience, the mind is fundamentally what the nervous system does, especially what the brain does. Now, the exact mapping between underlying neural activity And the conscious experience of, let's say, the color red or the smell of a rose or the love in our heart when we see someone we care about, you know, exactly how that happens is still a profound mystery. It's called the hard problem. Mm -hmm. But there is no mystery. There is no question in Western science, at least, about the 
correlating, the co-relating, the co-occurring, the codependent arising, to use the Buddhist language, mm-hmm. of mental and neural activity. They, they, they occur simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And so by understanding some basics about what's happening inside the brain, that then gives you power. It gives you the ability in little practical ways, which I talk about in my various books and stuff, little practical ways that you can use mental activity to stimulate underlying neural circuits, which then strengthen those circuits over the time. Because mm-hmm. in the famous saying, neurons that fire together, wire together. Ongoing neural activity leaves lasting traces in neural structure. So mm-hmm. by using your mind in very skillful, specific ways that are available to anybody really, you can then get diff- get different kinds of, a- of good neural activities going, which then over time build neural structure, which then over time become psychological resources, they improve our mood, they build up inner strength, they mm-hmm. make us more resilient, more able to manage, you know, the twists and turns, the roller coaster of life. Um, they help us feel more able to do our spiritual practice, if that's of interest to us. They help us manage difficult relationships more effectively. That's it, in a nutshell. It's kind of mm-hmm. like, you know, if you're going to, gosh, what would be a good analogy? I mean, yeah, you can slap some food together and it probably tastes good. And some people are better intuitive cooks than others, like our daughter's an extraordinary intuitive cook. On the other hand, knowing at least a little bit about how food works, just at the basic level of watching some crazy-eyed guy on the Food Network explaining a little bit like why bread rises and what happens when you boil water and what's the best way to cook onions, you know. By learning just a little bit about the hardware, you can then produce wonderful feasts. And so that's in a nutshell what I'm into. By knowing just enough about your own brain, uh, it, it brings you into a kind of an intimacy with yourself, a felt intimacy so that you know yourself better and you can be more effective intervening inside your own brain, uh, for, which is the foundation, mm-hmm. of course, of your well-being and your functioning in life. That's really true. You know, as you're speaking and as I remember that those parts of your book, I feel more hope. And I think, you know, as, as humans, if we understand why we're the way we are and why we're having this fight or flight response or, you know, why we're feeling, uh, threatened by this or nervous about this, I, I mean, I feel much more relaxed and hopeful now that I understand the neuroscience behind my reactions. Yeah. That's great. It's been helpful. It's been helpful. I know. It really gives you a sense that, by the way, it gives you the sense that when you do practices, like people learn on your show or through other sources, mm-hmm. that when you do practices, you're actually changing your own brain, and that can motivate people. And, of course, motivation is so fundamental to sustaining practice down the you know, long and twisty road of life. No, it's so true. You know, you were mentioning you know, spiritual uh, beliefs or spiritual practices, mm-hmm. if, you so, you know, if you believe that and so on in your last few yeah. sentences. And you you do call it Buddha's brain, so there uh-huh. is you know there is that um, you know belief, or there is that um, whatever you want to call it. But it's it's an over overriding um, feeling that you have even when you see your title. So I wanted you I wanted to say so, you to say something about coming up with that title. Oh sure. Well, what's interesting about the historical Siddhartha. Uh, the person who was called the Buddha. And look, the word Buddha is an interesting one. It means essentially knowing, uh, the one who knows. He was mm-hmm. considered to be, he was also called the happy one, too, mm-hmm. but he was definitely called the one who, who knows, who understands yes. profoundly. So 
The interesting thing is that he did not claim any supernatural powers. In other words, unlike just about any other major world, you know, founder of a religion, let's say, or a world religious figure, um, he was uh, agnostic, really, about mm-hmm. transcendental factors, uh, particularly in the common sense that we might think of as God, including mm-hmm. God as sort of, you know, a ground of everything. He didn't speak against God, but he didn't claim to be divinely inspired. He basically said, essentially, I went out and I, I practiced really hard and I became awakened. And these insights and these practices are available to everyone, men and women alike. Radically for his time, he taught women as well as men. And radically for his time, he taught people from all walks of life, not just the Brahmins, but also mm-hmm. the untouchables or the equivalent yes. of his day. And so to me, in effect, he's a, he's a worthy model. You know, if you want to get good at anything, study the people that are good at it. You know, if yes. I want to get good at tennis, I watch Roger, Roger Federer, right? Mm-hmm. I don't watch some, I don't my dad trying to hit a tennis ball or something <laughs> like that. And in the same way, you want to learn about cooking, you know, watch some of these cooking yep. shows. You know, you can learn something there. That's anyway, right. um, so if you want to get good at happiness and love and wisdom and, you know, unshakable resilience, well, yes. why not study the people that have made that their life work, including yep. epitomes like the Buddha? Yep. And what's interesting, too, about his teachings is that they're very psychological, especially if you get a good translation of the, uh, the what's called the Pali, P-A-L-I, that's the language they're in, the originally, yes. uh, of, his, of his discourses. They're very psychological. They're not metaphysical, mm-hmm. you, most of them. Mm-hmm. They're very specific. Mm-hmm. And so if you yes. think about it, he's basically giving us a, a roadmap. I think of him with profound respect as Coach Buddha. You know, He's saying, look, do this. And if you do this, causes and conditions, you will cause different changes to occur in your mind, which we now understand mean causing different changes to occur in your brain. And so for me, what's really been powerful, and I've tried to do with great respect, is to what's called naturalize the Dharma. In other words, take these profound teachings, operationalize them in modern Western psychological terms, and then operationalize those in terms of what's happening in the underlying neural processes and structures, Mm -hmm. which then embed um, enlightenment, really, in nature, in the body, in our own biology. It brings us home to an intimacy, like I said, with ourselves. And then it gives us tremendous power because when you naturalize it in this way, it takes it out of the clouds. It takes these wisdom teachings out of the clouds and brings them down to the body where we can do something about them. And where they're practical and we can um, become happy and the Buddha is our model. We're going to need to take a break. This is fascinating. I can barely stop, but we will be Mm -hmm. right back. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Join Patricia Raskin, the host of Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com, Monday, 11 Pacific. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call to Positive Living, Mondays at 11 Pacific Time, right here on VoiceAmerica.com. Dr. Susan Allison is available online, by phone, and in person to help you heal whatever is no longer working in your life. You can go to her website at www.empoweredhealer.com or call her toll-free 
at 866-268-2121. Dr. Allison also has CDs and DVDs available on her website to empower you even more. You can listen to her voice guide you through meditations, visualizations, and exercises from her book, Empowered Healer. Her powerful book is available from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Balboa Press, and from local bookstores. Begin today to gain the confidence, power, and ability to heal yourself. Visit EmpoweredHealer.com or call 866-268-2121. Being here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern-day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane right here on the 7th Wave Network. Be the change. The 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. We are held in the hands of the goddess. We are held, we are held, we are You are tuned in to the Empowered Healer Show with Dr. Susan Allison. If you wish to speak to Dr. Allison or her guests this week, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. Or you can send an email to the Empowered Healer at Comcast.net. Now, back to the program. Welcome back, everyone, to the Empowered Healer Show. And I have as my guest Rick Hansen, author of Buddha's Brain. And before the break, hopefully you were listening, but if you've just tuned in, he was telling us why he called it Buddha's Brain, and he is going to say a couple more things about that. Oh, briefly, and thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, since if you think of the word Buddha as one who knows, in other words, one who knows deeply the causes of suffering and, most important, the causes of the end of suffering, uh, then we all have access, ultimately, to a Buddha brain. Whether our background is Christian or Jewish or Muslim or, or Hindu or shamanic or, or none of the above, uh, a Buddha brain is the endowment, really, of humanity altogether. And so wherever we are on our own path, toward a brain, which means therefore a mind, that knows deeply how to be unconditionally peaceful, happy, and loving, Mm -hmm. then we all have the opportunity to develop a Buddha brain over time, or at least make some progress in that direction. So that's what I've been trying to write about as a kind of a combination, you know, operating manual and toolbox for developing in our own ways over time a Buddha brain. Yes, no, I totally get it. And what you said about understanding the causes of suffering and the alleviation of our suffering. And, um, yeah, and that's what Buddha had and what we can all have. Yeah. Uh, yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to go into that a bit, into the suffering piece, which is in the first part of your book. Uh-huh. You, yeah. you speak about in chapter two about our negativity bias and survival strategies mm-hmm. that also have made us suffer. So why did our negativity bias occur in evolutionary terms? Um, so to put it in context, we've got 3.5 billion years of life altogether, about yeah. 650 million years of multi-celled creatures, 600 million years of the nervous system, and then uh, bringing it forward, 
about 200 million years of mammals, 40 or so million years of primates, let's say two and a half million years of tool manufacturing, hominids and humans. So it's a long run. Down that really, really long run, right, <laughs> our ancestors had to get carrots and avoid sticks. But here's the difference. If you fail to get a carrot today, you'll have a chance at one tomorrow. But if you fail to avoid the stick today, whap, no more carrots forever. So mm. sticks are different than carrots in terms of urgency and impact. Mm-hmm. And so our ancestors evolved uh, a real focus on, above all else, you know, eat lunch today, don't be lunch today. Mm. And the residues of that are what scientists call the negativity bias of the brain. There are a lot of examples of this bias. Just think about a relationship. Let's say 10 things happen in a day in that relationship, you know, someone you work with or live with or sleep with, and um, five are mildly pleasant, four are neutral, one's mildly unpleasant. Well, what's the one you're probably going to think about as you fall asleep or the one you're going to really want to clear up? Guess which one? Uh, Yeah, hello. That goes to lots of findings from research on couples uh, that essentially says you need roughly a five-to-one ratio of positive to negative interactions to have a long-term good relationship. That's kind of a cautionary, sobering comment, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's from very, very solid gold standard research. Five-to-one ratio, positive to negative. In effect, one negative equals roughly five positive. Mm -hmm. Or another example is the way that um, the brain immediately transfers negative experiences to storage. Once burned, twice shy, right? So if you ever, uh, if you have a negative experience in the wild and you escape from it, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, you better remember what's involved with that. Mm-hmm. But positive experiences, unless they're million-dollar moments, have plain vanilla memory systems, which means that typically, like anything we're trying to memorize, in effect, you need to hold it in awareness 10, 20 seconds in a row for the positive experience to transfer from short-term memory buffers to long-term memory storage. But how often do we actually do that? We might be having one mildly pleasant experience after another interspersed with neutral ones, but how often do we stay with them past that critical threshold, you know, which is roughly 5, 10, 20 seconds in a row for them to transfer over? We don't usually do that. That means that most of the time... Positive experiences flow through the brain like water through a sieve, while negative ones get caught every time. Mixing my metaphors here, in effect, it makes the brain like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. The brain is very efficient at converting momentary negative states to lasting neural traits, but it is very inefficient at converting momentary positive experiences into last positive states into lasting positive traits. That's why one of the major um, themes in my work is the idea of taking in the good, the idea yep. that if you tilt toward positive experiences and especially tilt toward savoring them and registering them, installing them, mm-hmm. in effect, into lasting structure, if you tilt toward positive experiences in this way, you're just leveling the playing field. I don't yep. mean ignoring the negative. Actually, as research shows, when you tilt toward the positive and build up these positive traits inside, one synapse at a time, as it were, you become actually more able to see the negative and to mm-hmm. cope with it and not deny it, but to stand strong, speak truth to power, stick up for those you love, and so forth. Yep. Um, and as a lot of research shows, just to sum up, <clears throat> probably the, the most powerful and effective way, the primary way to build up positive traits inside, you know, virtues, character strengths, 
positive mood, confidence, feelings of worth, skills, capabilities, and so forth, probably the best way on the whole to build up those positive traits is to skillfully use momentary positive states. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Cause and that that's was what the... I call taking in the good. Which yeah. is, you know, it's so important. It's literally the second chapter of my little book, Just One Thing. Mm-hmm. No, I, I see how important it is, um, you know, through most of your book, the second half of your book, especially um, Buddha's brain. I, I guess I want to ask more specifically, you know, since our brain preferentially does scan for and store and react to negative experiences, how do we more specifically retrain our brain to internalize the positive? Okay, you're getting there, in effect, the how of taking in the good. Yep. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll even take people through a little practice here, if you'll let That'd me. That'd be uh, wonderful. I'd love that. Okay, so there ba- I'll just say first, there are three basic steps in converting a momentary positive experience to lasting neural structure. The three steps are simply, number one, have a positive experience in the first place. Number two, extend that experience. 10, 20 seconds in a row. Stay with it. Don't let your mind skitter on to something else. Move into the body. Feel it in your body. Open to it emotionally. Give yourself to it. Let yourself have it. This is an act of kindness for, for yourself. And then in the third step, which kind of overlaps the second one, absorb it. In other words, intend and sense that the positive experience is sinking into you. That's the third step. In other words, as you mm-hmm. sink into it, it is sinking into you. So we have these three steps. Have it, extend it, and absorb it. So, so I'll just do let, it. Hmm, Go on. Let me just ask a question before you go on. It, yeah. So for, for people who haven't done this before, mm-hmm. I've been a long-time meditator. You have. But would somebody be in a quiet place? Would they close their eyes? So can you kind of give a little more uh, help sure. to listeners who've never done this? Sure. Most of the time, we're going to take in the good, as it were, on the fly. In other words, there you are, you walk into work, and you look around, and you, you notice that you're surrounded by uh, beauty, right? Mm-hmm. Literally, just a uh, little grass growing out of cracks on the sidewalk, yep. uh, the light glancing off the skyscraper windows, uh, people look appealing, walking by you, right there. Uh, you notice already that you're having an experience of kind of the, the pleasure of the day. Or maybe in the moment you're walking, you just feel a kind of ease in your body. You're breathing. There's an enoughness. It's okay. In other words, you're already having a positive experience, but maybe it's more in the background of awareness. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity here is to bring it more to the foreground, or maybe you're already having a positive experience that's right in the foreground. And instead of just letting your mind skitter on to the next thing, you tell yourself, hey, stay with, stay with this one just a little bit longer. So those are, those are, uh, that's basically one way to have a positive experience. The other way is to deliberately try to create it by thinking about things that give you a good feeling, et cetera. Wonderful, wonderful. We need to take another break, but mm-hmm. this is going so fast that I'm loving every moment. I'm, I'm forgetting to notice we have to take a break. That's uh, a good sign, Rick. That you know, That's a good sign. That well, you're on a the wonderful break, people guest. can take in the good. If you're, I know, if you're having a good experience, notice it and then see if you can let yourself stay with it. Yeah, so during the break, go ahead and practice these three steps, and we will be right back. Mm-hmm. 
This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Dr. Susan Allison is available online, by phone, and in person to help you heal whatever is no longer working in your life. You can go to her website at www.empoweredhealer.com or call her toll-free at 866-268-2121. Dr. Allison also has CDs and DVDs available on her website to empower you even more. You can listen to her voice guide you through meditations, visualizations, and exercises from her book, Empowered Healer. Her powerful book is available from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Balboa Press, and from local bookstores. Begin today to gain the confidence, power, and ability to heal yourself. Visit EmpoweredHealer.com or call 866-268-2121. What are the benefits to combining modern science with ancient healing practices? For the answers, you'll want to tune into Frame of Mind with your host, Terry Sue. Each week, our program focuses on ways to live more holistically. By developing new ways of looking at our world, we can find ways to foster harmony and peace for the good of mankind and our planet. If we learn to live and think healthier, we begin to explore and focus on our strengths. Tune into Frame of Mind, Saturdays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Be Visionary. Be extraordinary. Be the change. This is the 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. We are held in the hands of the goddess. We are held, we are held, we are held. You are tuned in to the Empowered Healer Show with Dr. Susan Allison. If you wish to speak to Dr. Allison or her guests this week, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. Or you can send an email to the Empowered Healer at Comcast.net. Now, back to the program. Welcome back, everyone. And I'm having a wonderful conversation with Rick Hansen, who's author of Buddha's Brain. And Rick and I were just talking about uh, how to retrain our brain to internalize the good. And he came, has given us three steps. And, you know, if you're just tuning in, I'll have him go over those steps again. And I think he wants to spend some more time on step one. Great. Um, well, we were talking about how actually the first step's the hardest. And it's the most important. Um, so I want to just kind of call out a number of ways to have a positive experience. All right, and forgive me for being numbingly thorough, but I find it really helps to kind of bring it down to earth and make it yep. very specific. So yes, and you can do this, by the way, you the listeners, um, as I go through this. And we're just talking here about the very first step: having a simple, ordinary, positive experience. By the way, when I say positive. I mean pragmatically positive. In other words, positive being that which leads to happiness and welfare for yourself and, and often for other people. Sometimes a positive experience feels unpleasant. For example, healthy remorse feels unpleasant, but it's important for us to register it. For example, when we realize, you know, we just drank too much or we had too many cookies or we took out our anger on the dog or whatever it is, that's an important experience to let sink in, even though it doesn't necessarily feel that pleasant. Okay, Mm -hmm. so having clarified that, 
Let's talk about ways to have a positive experience in the first place, which is step one. Number one, you might notice that in the foreground of awareness right now is already a positive experience. You know, you, you're, someone says something nice to you and you feel good. Or you're uh, eating a nice meal or taking a shower and it's, it, it's physically pleasant. Or you're listening to a beautiful song. Or you're petting your cat and it's so cozy and sweet. Or your little kid crawls into your lap. Or for once in his life gets into the car seat without throwing a tantrum about it. You know, whatever it is, <laughs> you're having a positive experience. And instead of letting your attention skitter away from it, try to stay with it. Okay, that's one way. A second is that in your awareness right now, but in the background of awareness, but accessible, if you just put a little attention on it, you're already having a positive experience, but you're not particularly noticing it. In other words, maybe in your body there's some sense of vitality or aliveness or ease or or pleasure or relaxation, or maybe in your mind in the background there's a basic sense of well-being or gratitude or warm-heartedness or curiosity or interest. The opportunity right there is to bring what's already present in awareness, but just in the background, and move it to the foreground of awareness in order to have a positive experience. All right? In both of these cases, you're already having a positive experience. Mm-hmm. I'm just talking about either noticing it or foregrounding it. All right? Then additionally, there are other things we can do to create a positive experience. For example, you can just be, bring to mind or think about some things in your life that you feel glad about or grateful for. Uh, people who love you, shelter over your head, maybe a recent event where you got something done that was important, anything that could make give you a good experience. In other words, you're thinking about facts in your life these days that naturally warrant, legitimately warrant, a positive experience. Sidebar, if you think about positive experiences on the 0 to 10 scale of intensity, most of them are 1s and 2s. Some of them are like 0.4. That's okay. They're good to take in. All right? Another way to create a positive experience is to think about things in your past. For example, nice memories, sweet experiences, great vacations, your grandma's you know, oatmeal, raisin, oatmeal raisin cookies, uh, a success you had, uh, first love, uh, beautiful sunset, whatever it is, you can do that. Mm-hmm. Another way to create a positive experience is to create a good fact, not just remember one from your past or think about one in your life in the present, but actually create it. For example, make yourself a really nice meal rather than grabbing half a bagel and a Diet Coke on the run. Or... Um, Stick your neck out with somebody and speak more from the heart or more directly or more assertively and let yourself feel good about that and take in, hopefully, the good results that occur. So create a good fact. And then last, if all else fails, imagine good facts that never were. They, For example, I've had clients who never had loving parents. That's the bottom line. It's tragic but true. But it's been very powerful for them not to falsify their own childhood, but rather to imagine in a very rich way being loved by caregiving figures, parental figures, and letting that sense of being loved by good parent figures really, really sink in. Mm -hmm. The larger point is that we have opportunities. If we are on our own side and if we are 
made a little wise by recognizing the negativity bias of the brain, we have tons and tons of opportunities every day to either um, notice that we're already having a positive experience or do very, very simple things to create a positive experience. And then once you have that positive experience, what I call the activation phase, all right, it's now activated. The mental state is positive, which means there's some kind of positive, in effect, underlying neural activity. Then you go into what I call the installation phase of extending the experience and absorbing it, which are the second and third steps of taking in the good. Wonderful. Yeah, that extending is the part I don't always do, which is, you know, doing the 20 seconds or longer where I really hold it. And, you know, the word that was coming up as you were using examples was savor. Mm. You know, it's like you were talking about the meal and the cookie, and I was extending it for me into nature and, and the beauty there and just breathing it in and savoring summer, you know, savoring the color of the sky and, you know, a camellia blossom or whatever, mm. but savoring it longer. And I think that's the I, – I do the first step pretty well but yeah. I, I what i'm going to do is work on number two and three more great for you yeah um yeah and i think for a lot of people that is the turning point they're having positive experiences a lot of research shows that most people most moments and most days feel a, a mild well-being in other words mm-hmm. they're mildly happy so we're, we're having tragically not everybody but most people are having lots of little positive experiences the problem is we leave tons and tons of money on the table. Yeah. I have a business background. It kills me when my clients leave money on the table, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're letting it just wash through the mind, like yeah. water through a sieve, rather than being a friend to ourselves and engaging life in a way that's stickier, as it mm-hmm. were, to positive experiences that are the basis of positive resources inside. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And during the break, we were talking about slowing down because I think part of this process, it needs to be a slowing down in a world that seems to daily be speeding up. And so, you know, I see people sort of like zooming through experiences that really could be very, very um, satisfying and and create happiness and joy and uh, bliss and all those things. They're zooming past them. And so I think part of this process needs to be a conscious slowing down, you know, and you talk in the book a great deal in terms of your our breathing, mm. in terms of our setting aside time to meditate, and you have many meditations in the book to allow mm. us that slowing down process. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, you know, it's interesting. Part of it is I just got home yesterday, uh, literally, uh, from Europe, and or actually day before yesterday. Today's Thursday. It's a blur to me. But anyway, yeah, if it's Tuesday, it must be Vienna. But anyway, and i got to say that, you know, people move around there, but the pace is definitely different. And by law, for example, shops will shut, small shops will shut down uh, for 12, between 12 and 2. Mm -hmm. They, as a matter of public policy, you know, the country of Austria or Sweden or Italy uh, or, or France or Germany wants, its workers to go home, to eat lunch with their families, 
Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that as a matter of public policy in America? Isn't it? No, but it's great. I, I've lived in New Zealand and England yeah. and Japan, yeah. and Japan is also very fast, I found, but they, yeah. they do it a little differently from the way we do. But, but in, in New Zealand, I mean, there was yeah. tea time, and the university was basically shut, the offices. You know, yeah. people were not working. People were having tea, and um, it, it took a while to get used to that, but I loved it. Yeah, totally. So I think for me a little bit, you know, is that I think there's an old, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about can be framed somehow as loosey-goosey, airy-fairy, new-agey fluff. And I think of it actually as very tough-minded and based on a rigorous clarity about the ways in which Mother Nature has endowed us with a caveman, cavewoman brain that's fantastic for passing, passing on gene copies in horrible, tough, harsh survival conditions, but a brain that's lousy for long-term quality of life or long-term health and therefore longevity. Second, there's a tough-mindedness in realizing that no one but us is really going to change our brain for the better. Mm-hmm. Obama's not going to change our brain for the better. Romney's right. not going to change our brain for the better. The UN, you know, Citicorp, the person next door, our parents, even nope. our therapists, they're not going to nope. change our brain for the better. It's up to us to do it from the inside out, and we got to earn the results. And part of that, for me, is an autonomy issue. In a sense, attention is our most fundamental property, and yet we let all kinds of people steal our attention all That's day right. long, including forcing us to run around like, like crazed zombies plugged into our iPods, you know, rather than controlling our attention and our pace ourselves by slowing down just that 1 to 2 to 5 to 10% that makes all the difference in the world. I completely agree. I'm so glad that you said that. Um, you know, and there's so many more things I want to talk about, and I think I'd like to um, talk about how to become more empathic, more compassionate, um, kinder, and all of these qualities leading to our inherent, you know, inner happiness. And yeah. so, and we, you know, we have mm-hmm. only about a minute till break, but I wanted if you would start on that, like if there's something oh, specific sure. that you could help people with in terms of increasing mm-hmm. their happiness through empathy yeah. and compassion and kindness. I'd say a lot of studies show that the way to prime the pump, to warm up the circuits, is to start by really looking for and calling up, if you have to, a sense of being cared about by others. Mm-hmm. In other words, the foundation of being loving is feeling loved. And so bringing to mind people in your life today or in your past, could be a human, a group of people, a pet, a spiritual being, the relationship doesn't need to be perfect, but one or more beings that you know factually you do matter to. They mm-hmm. wish you well. It doesn't have to be a profound relationship. I think of, frankly, the guys across the street at the deli where I get my chicken salad sandwich or something like that. You know, we joke, we laugh about baseball. I know they wish me well. And it's definitely not a deeper, intimate relationship. And I'm also surrounded, of course, by, I'm sure you and other people are, by lots of other relationships. So if you just, when you're having a sense that someone cares about you, really savor it, to use your word, a great one. Mm -hmm. And also several times a day, if you can, Call up the felt sense of being included and loved. And then second, if you can, take it to a sense of compassion and caring for those that are easy to feel caring for. Mm -hmm. Know what it's like to have the heart open 
And then increasingly, you can come home to this place, which is our natural state anyway. Yep. Yeah, that's really true, and you spend quite a bit of time talking about empathy and compassion in terms of looking at other people and really um, feeling what it is perhaps that they're going through, and it could be an animal, and then I do this. It's like if I see an animal hit on the road, you know, I just, oh, my heart goes out. I feel so much empathy, and I say a little prayer right there for that animal and yeah. feeling compassion for a homeless person on the street here in town, and we have so many in Santa Cruz, California. And um, so just to increase our empathy and our compassion, but I loved how you said that it starts with feeling loved ourselves uh, and feeling that and then extending that to others. Yeah, exactly right. Extending that to others. So we're going to take a break, and uh, we will be right back. The 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Is there a difference between dream work and intuition? The relationship is closer than you think. These are mutually supportive concepts. When you dream, your intuition serves as a foreshadow of the future and can bring rapid results through dream analysis. Tune in to The Partnership of Intuition and Dreams with your host, Dr. Marcia Emery. Explore this unique relationship and learn to understand how the symbolism of dreams can be clarified. Listen every Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Dr. Susan Allison is available online, by phone, and in person to help you heal whatever is no longer working in your life. You can go to her website at www.empoweredhealer.com or call her toll-free at 866 866- 2682121 Dr. Allison also has CDs and DVDs available on her website to empower you even more. You can listen to her voice guide you through meditations, visualizations, and exercises from her book Empowered Healer. Her powerful book is available from Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Balboa Press, and from local bookstores. Begin today to gain the confidence, power, and ability to heal yourself. Visit EmpoweredHealer.com or call 866-268-2121. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Seek greater awareness. We are held in the hands of the goddess. We are held, we are held. You are tuned in to the Empowered Healer Show with Dr. Susan Allison. If you wish to speak to Dr. Allison or her guests this week, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. Or you can send an email to the Empowered Healer at Comcast.net. Now, back to the program. Welcome back, everyone, to the Empowered Healer Show, and I have Rick Hansen here, who is the author of Buddha's Brain, and it's been a great show. I hope you've been able to hear all of it. If you haven't, the show will be archived, and you can listen to it anytime by going to my host page, which is the Empowered Healer Show, 7th Wave Network uh, on voiceamerica.com. 
So, Rick, before I forget, I want you to tell people how they can get your books. You have two books, and also how they can contact you. Oh, thank you. Well, the two books are Buddha's Brain, which is sort of a foundational book. It's got a, quite a lot of neuroscience in it that I think is written, or at least I tried to write it, in an extremely clear and direct way without dumbing it down, but definitely written yep. for a general audience, as well as um, a sprinkling of Buddhism and a lot of practices. Then yes. my second book is called Just One Thing. It's 52 practices, just one at a time. Each of them is very short, about three pages long. They include things like get on your own side, take in the good, enjoy your hands, um, you know, risk the dreaded experience, uh, fill the hole in your heart, uh, relax anxiety about imperfection, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Very, mm-hmm. very practical, very, very down to earth with a bit of neuroscience dropped in, but more than anything else, a book of practices because I'm a Wonderful. major fan of, you know, doing practices. And you can Me get too. those books anywhere. Your local bookseller, Barnes & Noble, Amazon. I think they're both about 10 bucks on Amazon. They're very affordable. Great. And my website, if people have an interest in it, is Rick Hansen, S-O-N, rickhansen.net, which is chock full of freely offered resources, talks, slide sets from workshops I do with general public as well as therapists, videos, writings, stuff that's offered freely that people can use or pass along as they see fit. Mm, Wonderful for sharing that. And also during the break, I asked you what you're passionate about right now, and you mentioned Mm. some things to me. So here's your chance to Uh, um, share what you are excited about. Yeah. Well, thanks. Um, I'll I'll try to say it succinctly. So this is not in any of my books. I'm actually working on this uh, for the next one, the one I'm doing on Taking in the Good. But basically... The brain evolved in three stages, essentially reptile, mammal, and then primate human. Each of those stages was focused on a fundamental need. Stage one, avoid harms. In other words, eat lunch today, don't be lunch today. Stage two, approach rewards. In other words, go out and get those carrots. And stage three, attach to others. All right? mm-hmm. And now the brain works as a whole to pursue those three needs, avoiding harms, approaching rewards, and attaching to others. Mm-hmm. The brain also evolved two fundamental ways to meet those needs. Now, when we feel undisturbed, when we're not disturbed by hunger, by pain, by illness, by threat, by loss or, or frustration, or by rejection, we default to the resting state of the brain. It's what's called homeostatic. It's stable. It's sustainable. In this state, I call it the responsive mode, the brain, the body refuels and repairs itself, and in the mind, we feel a basic sense of peace, happiness, and love in terms of those three systems. Peace in terms of the avoiding system, happiness in terms of the approaching reward system, and love in terms of the attaching to other system. That's the good news. The bad news is that Mother Nature also endowed us with a second setting on a hair trigger just like that. We snap into it as soon as we feel at all threatened or at all frustrated yep. or at all voted off the island. And then we tip into the reactive mode of the brain, the fight-or-flight stress response mode, in which the body burns resources. It's called the allostatic mode of the body. Uh, we burn resources uh, for short-term sh- survival needs. And in the mind, there's a basic sense of using traditional language Hatred in terms of the avoiding system, fear and anger, mm-hmm. essentially, or greed, which is to say drivenness, frustration, or disappointment in terms of the approaching system, and what I call heartache, which uh, is a sense of uh, loneliness or feeling unloved or feeling ashamed and inadequate in mm-hmm. terms of the attaching system. 
those of you that know anything about Buddhist psychology probably recognize what I'm doing here. In yep. the traditional notion of Buddhism, there are three poisons, uh, hatred, greed, and delusion. I think the Buddha implied the fourth poison, but I'm trying to make it explicit, which is heartache. Yeah. So the point is that, how do we come home? Mm-hmm. How do we come home to the natural resting state of the brain? It's responsive mode of peace, happiness, and love for our own sake, for the sake of our relationships, and what really motivates me, for the sake of the planet as a whole. Yes. You could look out at the planet and say, you know, if I were to talk about this in terms of the brain, the fundamental problem with the planet today is that we have way too many brains that are in the reactive mode. Yes. It could be fairly mild, but if it's chronic, it's kind of like a chronic inner homelessness. People who've left their fundamental home in the responsive mode of peace, happiness, and love. So let's take the fruit as the path, to use the Tibetan saying. In other words, by having moments in which, in everyday and generally fairly mild ways, moments in which we feel a basic sense of peace or happiness and love, those moments gradually convert to underlying neural structure. And then increasingly, if you feel grounded more and more in your being, unconditionally, in a basic sense, not white light, but a, but a realistic basic sense of peace, happiness, and love, then you're much less rattled by the world. You're much less likely to go to war. You're much less likely to mistreat your neighbor. You're much less likely to kick the dog or squabble with your, your family members. And also, you're much more able to engage life and pursue your aims, but in ways that don't trouble you or other people. And so I really encourage people, my kind of my final thought here, yes. to look for those little opportunities for ordinary, typically mild or subtle or small experiences of basic peace, in other words, calm, relaxation, feeling all right right now, feeling unthreatened, feeling not at war, basic experiences of happiness. What I mean by that is a basic sense of the, the enoughness of this moment, the fullness mm-hmm. of this moment, gladness, gratitude, contentment, or love feeling basically warm-hearted toward others or on the receiving end of caring from other people, the more human brains out of 7 billion that we get spending more minutes in a basic sense of peace, happiness, and love, the more, the more quickly we'll move to a world that is peaceful and sustainably prosperous. I completely agree with you, and there's so many practices in the book Buddha's Brain for those of you who are going to go out and get it right away that will help you through this, where Rick talks about fear and talks about how you can overcome your fear and what sort of techniques you can use when you're, when you're disturbed or you're feeling rattled or you're feeling, uh, cha- you know, challenged in some way or threatened uh, he has all kinds of ways that you we can't go into now that you can uh, return to peace and keep returning to peace and this also reminds me um, Rick of you know doing transcendental meditation in the 70s and living in England and and there were all these studies at the time of a certain number or percentage of the population meditating and the crime rate went down yeah uh, and I can't go into it now because I have to end the show but I just mm-hmm. wanted to, to mention that and now to say I've enjoyed having you so so much and hope to have you back oh I'd love to come back Susan it's been great and I really wish all your listeners well Thank you so much. And uh, thanks all of you for being here on the Empowered Healer Show today. I hope you've breathed in all this wisdom and will continue to use it in your lives. Next week, we have the CEO of the Institute of Heart Math, Deborah Rosman, to talk even more about developing a happy, heart-centered life. Until then, this is Dr. Susan Allison wishing you all much peace. 
you again for listening to the Empowered Healer Show. Please join your host, Dr. Susan Allison, again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Until then, have an empowering and fulfilling week. We are held in the arms of the goddess.